Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucking ears, what the fuck sticks, what the fucksters, what the fuckadelics? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for stopping by. Our guest today is uh, Robin Hitchcock, who uh, is one of those guys that a lot of people know, and the people that know him and love him know all about him and love him and have all his records. He's been around a long time. My experience with him, I remember when... Someone, I don't even remember who turned me on to the Soft Boys record, Underwater Moonlight. I think it might have been Jay Dobis, Jonathan Richmond's friend in Boston, Massachusetts. Maybe. But I'd never heard of the Soft Boys, and I got this record in the cover. I didn't love the cover, the Soft Boys Underwater Moonlight. And I'm not even sure when it came out, but I'm sure I got it after the fact. And I played that record to fucking death. I was like, what the hell? Who's this uh, deep, angry dude writing these psychedelic lyrics? What is with the sound of this thing? And I love that record. And then I, I grew to you know know that Robin Hitchcock was the driver of the Soft Boys. And then uh, later, Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians' Globe of Frogs came out. And I was like, this is great. Globe of Frogs. This, the lyrics are awesome. It sounds like the Beatles and Pink Floyd fucked each other. I like it. And then, you know, he did some solo stuff here and there. He's done a lot of stuff, and I was thrilled to talk to him. Robin Hitchcock is a force to be reckoned with. He's a hell of a songwriter, and uh, I was thrilled to have him in here. I'm not sure he knew where he was going or what exactly it was, but and he was a bit tired from the road, but uh, but he did, he did hang out, and we did get to know each other, and we have common friends, too. Uh, Eugene Merman is a, a champion of the Hitchcockian. Also, Robin's got a new record out called The Man Upstairs, which is available now. And I think, uh, I, you know, once you get the hang of Robin, you're going to fucking want it all. They just reissued a Soft Boys record. I think the first Soft Boys record. I don't remember who did it, but I have it on vinyl. And uh, yeah, yeah, get, get Underwater Moonlight, though. That's where I entered. Why not enter there? Uh, I Want to Destroy You, Insanely Jealous, are two, uh, <laughs> two, two songs that really resonated with me at the time I listened to them. Of course, I'm beyond that now. But uh but yeah, so that's coming up in a second, me and Robin chatting. On and off, you know, I've been talking about the patent troll personal audio who came after podcasters. Uh, it, was, it's a, it was and is, you know, a frightening prospect that they claimed that they had a patent that covered um, 
some of the technology involved in podcasting. And, and oddly, none of us had that technology, but by utilizing or using the technology, they decided that we were infringing on on their patent and they, you know, that we required to license it from them. And they tried to extort money from many of us. Uh, most of us just by threatening letters, mildly threatening letters, but okay. So whether or not you understand the full, you know, scope of what was going on there, it was basically a shakedown racket trying to get podcasters to cough up money of an undisclosed amount based on a conversation uh, that we would have with them if we had that conversation, which I didn't. They would determine the amount, uh, uh, how much money it would take to protect ourselves from them again. You get how it works. Extortion is extortion. A shakedown is a shakedown. But as many of you do know, or maybe not, Adam Carolla was actually sued by personal audio. Now this, look, this... This whole situation, it was it, it was going on for a while, and it was horribly aggravating and scary. And you know, we can finally you know feel some relief here. And, and let me just you know, I'll just try to parse it out for you. The way they're spinning it, personal audio, they said that they settled their lawsuit with Adam. Okay, now they like using the word "settled" because it makes it sound like money was paid out. That is not true. In fact, a more accurate word would be dismissed because the lawsuit against Corolla is dead. Personal audio also put into writing, folks, that they will not go after podcasters anymore. Now, obviously, they didn't list all podcasters, but they did list, you know, the core group of us that was sort of, you know, sounding off about the issue. Uh, me, uh, Nerdist, the Earwolf podcast, Jay Moore, um, Joe Rogan. So they, they put that in writing. Is it legally binding? I don't think so. So there's no, there's no reason we should really take them at their word because they haven't been honest brokers from the get-go. But for the time being, I, I, you know, we know this. Everyone who fought back against the extortion racket brought attention to the issue of patent trolling and patent abuse, you know, and helped put it on the radar. They came after regular guys like me and Adam joe my friend sam cedar and we reacted as regular guys who were being you know shook down yeah we we have microphones and we're going to talk about it now i need you to know that adam can't talk about this for about a month and a half because it's part of the deal okay but in so doing what we did you know speaking out we protected the medium of podcasting and prevented anyone from having to pay these guys anything Okay, this is a concerted group effort on behalf of those guys and women who chose to speak up about this publicly. Adam Carolla deserves a lot of fucking credit, folks, for putting it all on the line. All right, this he went to bat, man. He fought back at great expense to himself, knowing that the alternative would be to pay personal audio a settlement, which they would then use against all of us as a precedent, you know, to shake down all of us. And they would have legal precedent to do that. And yes, he raised a lot of funds to help pay his legal bills. But the bottom line is he's still in the hole to the tune of about 200K, you know, even with all the money you gave him in support. You know, he was in, I think he went in, you know, close to like six, seven hundred thousand dollars and he was going to fight it all the way through. But the bottom line is they dismissed it. Why wouldn't he take that deal? But I guess most importantly, this fight isn't over. 
Thanks to the attention we all brought to this situation, the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, has a pending review of this garbage patent that personal audio was using, and the review is real and solid and could invalidate this patent forever. That means they'll never be able to sue anyone with it ever again. That's a big deal, and it might not have happened if we didn't get loud about this in the first place. Okay? And for now, personal audio is going to go after big dogs like ABC and NBC and CBS. And they say they're going to leave us, you know, all of us podcasters alone. Hopefully, the way we fought back against them will make the big networks realize that they shouldn't just settle with these guys, that they can fight back against these trolls and call their bluff. I still hope that this patent will be invalidated. And I still am excited that people know that this happens because it's a real thing and you know if there's any criticism about you know why didn't adam fight all the way through why didn't he you know take him to the mat why didn't he counter sue i'll tell you why he didn't have the fucking money and some people who are you know involved with the broader issue of patent trolls and patent reform you know think they're like well this is what always happens no it isn't what always happens we raised awareness of the reality of it we all fought back we spoke our minds and we made an impact and for now, podcasting is protected and the issue of patent trolling is, is, is now relevant and, and out in the world much more than it would have been. And hopefully ABC, NBC, and CBS will just fight this guy. And yeah, definitely the patent system needs some help. Okay, look, Robin Hitchcock, he's here. Let's talk. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Podcasts. Talk to him. Now, are we able to? St- we can have breaks, presumably. Sure. So, if I want to get more coffee or go to the bathroom, or I think we can. Like yeah, that, sure. Yeah. I can. I can arrange for that. I can arrange to uh, to walk you back into my house. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> to, to have that happen, I think I saw you actually. When did you guys? I was a huge Soft Boys fan. Is that okay? Yeah, I mean, no, that's fine. The soft point. I mean, right, that was a long time ago. I know that. I know, but I, I saw you at Irving Plaza when you guys got back together. Oh, right, that was uh, what year was 2001, that? probably. Yeah, yeah. That was good. Was it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Were you happy about it? Um, or do you, does it all just fade away eventually? No, I think I liked. I think it was good. I think that. I th- I don't know about the reunions, you know, the resurrections. That they're, they're kind of there's a little bit of the a, a bit of the undead, a bit of the zombie about it. Uh, there's something slightly unnatural about right. reconvening a group of men who've been together 
uh, in an earlier existence. But so that was like, but you're talking like 25 years ago, right? Or more. Oh, well, it, God, it had been 20 years since we'd been a band. Yeah. And it's now that it's, oh, God, I mean, this is 13 years ago. I just... I, I just felt like I thought musically it was really good. Yeah. But I just thought psychologically it was a bit strange. And it was strange to be <laughs> in a group as opposed to just operating under my own name. Right. Um, and having to sort of pretend that I was part of a band rather than I was the guy who was the central figure and called all the shots. And, right. You know, uh, that it was basically... The Soft Boys was a brand that I operated under. Well, how long uh, had, how long so, were you guys a band though? Actually, well, the we Soft were Boys. only a band for four, pretty much four years. You know, early seventy seven to early eighty one, and in that time, there were the drummer Mor Morris and I were yeah. were the only constant members. But Morris Windsor and Andy Metcalf, who'd been in the Soft Boys also comprised the bulk of Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians, which lasted from 80, 84 to 93. And so we kind of had... Uh, the Soft Boys had a lot of aftershocks. Yeah. You know, we, although we weren't very long together, we had a bunch of reunions. Yeah. And we had me and the Egyptians, and then we had... I toured with Kimberly Rue. It was was it in my in my band in the late nineties, and then we reconvened as the Soft Boys. And then after the Soft Boys, I had Morris and Kimberly in my British band for a few years. So you guys all remain friends. So we, um, well, I don't know. I mean, some of us are in touch. You know, yeah. Like I've said, as I say, you know. We will all go to each other's funerals. <laughs> you will. That's that's how out that's, of politeness. That's how bands operate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so where did you where, where did you grow up? How how was uh? Because I mean, you have a unique vision about everything. Where did that come from? Where did you grow up? What was the environment like? Uh, the environment was Britain in the early and mid nineteen fifties. You know, I was born in nineteen fifty three. So yeah. I was born to a father who had been wounded in Normandy in 1944 and his right leg didn't bend. So he had a sort of strange kind of slightly oh, yeah. peg-legged gait. You could hear the money jingling in his trousers as he went up and down the How, stairs. You could hear his, his walk. You know, Was he shit, hit or with shrapnel? Or? He was hit with the knee with shrapnel. He was lucky in that he didn't have to have his leg amputated. Yeah. And I was always very grateful that my father wasn't an amputee. Yeah. But, um, that would have made you more morbid, probably. I don't think that would have been possible, but <laughs> I would have, and I'm sure I'd have, I'd have dealt with it. But, yeah. But uh, it did mean my father was what used to be called a cripple. And uh -huh. I think my dad used to run, you know, he'd been a quite um, athletic boy. But, yeah. uh, you know, 22, he was, he was, that was, he was hit for life and his, he was in hospital in in uh, Newcastle for nine months after he was wound, taken out of Normandy, and his mother went to visit visit him and said, "Oh, I don't know. No one's going to want to dance with you, Raymond. I don't know who's going to want to marry you." Oh, no. <laughs> so I think he was very grateful when my mother took an interest. So it's so amazing so, that yeah. generation because, like, growing up in the states or even like, but I I wouldn't have. But the idea that like that London was leveled. You know, it's some like in recent history is kind of profound. 
A lot of it was. I yeah. think that was part of the shock of 9-11 because there's been so little warfare on American soil. I mean, you could argue, you know, obviously, apart from the Civil War, you could argue that America is in a constant state of warfare on everywhere level. else. But, yeah. but, you know, it, it same as in Australia. You know, I've just been in Australia. There's lots of Art Deco buildings in Sydney. Still, still, yeah. That, that we, Britain had just got to Art Deco in the 30s. And, yeah. and that whole thing was was stymied by the war all the buildings stopped and a lot of buildings were were demolished yeah. so our there's this whole sort of might have been chapter that just didn't take place and, yeah. and, and, uh, and australia sort of shows where it might have gone right um yeah london was you know a lot of it wasn't totaled like berlin was right but it, there were a lot of bomb sites there were a lot of um gun emplacements around you know that the, the cricket we lived uh, English style, actually opposite a village green with a yeah. cricket, uh, you know, where they played cricket and stuff. And in the corner was an old gun emplacement. Oh, really? That as kids we'd sort of run into. And, you know, there'd be... Were like, they like the slots? There were the you, slots, yeah. you know, and you could pretend to to, to sure. get people in the sights. And yeah. meanwhile, there was always some kind of, some horrible kind of fetid thing in the corner, you know, some <laughs> bundle of rags or newspapers <laughs> sure. or fecal matter that, you know... Someone was living there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And then they've been living there. I think they've just gone in there and used it as either a toilet or as a place to to copulate. Yeah, both. You sure. know, but some place to have bodily functions out of the prying eye of their neighbours <laughs> and the children and the children. But of course, the children. Anyway, you know, there were, but the children, and that, which is one of which I was. Uh, you know, were scampering around the old brickworks and the gun emplacements. So yeah, there was a lot of the. The ghost of World War Two was around, you know, the people who mm -hmm. were, well, like my dad. I mean, sure. he was in his 30s. Or whatever, whole generation of a whole generation. And people were recovering from World War Two. What did your dad end up doing? Uh, he was an, he trained as an engineer, uh, sort of like a scientific engineer. He and what worked was it? Well, he worked for Mercury Communications, partly to do with the post office. It was sort of like a satellite right. communications. And what did he end up doing for a living? Well, he did that for a while, and then he uh, did cartoons and paintings, and then he wrote a movie. He wrote a book which got made into a movie, which made him a lot of money, which was uh, it's about a guy who has a penis transplant. Seriously? It's called Percy, yeah. When was that Ray made? Davis did the music for it. Oh, really? Uh, it came out in 1970. It's a sort of British... It's, it's um, like me, it's a minor British cult. You know? <laughs> right. It's kind of... Uh, it, it's, it's one of those... It's one of those things that's sort of seen as what used to be saucy or right. smutty. Or, right. It wasn't smutty, but because it was about sex, there was an attitude to sex... Certainly in Britain in the sort of 30s, 40s, and 50s. You ever heard of George Formby? Uh-uh. Do you know Andy Preboy? Yeah. Well, Andy Preboy knows a lot of that stuff. Sort right. Of British, arcane British comedy from right. that era. And it was that a whole world of, you know about the carry-on movies? No. It was a whole world of innuendo, British classic seaside sure. um, postcards, you know, a little drawing of a um, of a tiny figure playing the piano and a man standing by wishing well with a red face going you ruddy idiots i didn't ask for a 12 inch pianist 
Yeah. And it's all that it, that whole <laughs> world of uh you know of kind of innuendo yeah. yeah which 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 has gone now because everything became much more open about sex in the 60s and 70s. Right around the time yeah. Percy would have come you out. Know, yeah, exactly. And so you can't you, you can't all that stuff is now very of its time, but you you can't make uh, you couldn't make a movie like like those movies anymore because people don't care, you know. It's oh like, no, everyone's um, been so thoroughly fucked you know. in the head; nothing matters. Uh, well, that, that literally was, that was the idea. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, um, you know, although Percy wasn't exactly, it was produced by those by one of the companies that did that sort of stuff. Um, like the Peter so Sellers did, movies. Yeah, yeah. But I think Britt Eklund was in. Uh, yeah. was in Percy actually. Who or, played or the Alpha lead? Some guy called Howell Bennett. Uh, Denim Elliott's in it. Um, I don't know. It's it's you know it's real. It's especially because Ray Davis did the music. It is and you were really already part a, of a, a musician at that time. I mean, if it came out in 1970, you were on your no, way. No, I was I was 17. I was playing the guitar, but I didn't meet Ray Davis till about four or five years ago. Oh, really? But um, are you guys friends now? Uh, no, I've just met him a couple of times. You did know. you bring he, up the he, fact that your dad did that? Did it, did it? Was it a connection? He knew about it. Yeah, he was a bit sniffy about the movie, and I mean, the movie is—it's <laughs> not great art. My mother was sniffy about it. I think she was hoping that that my dad was going to be, uh, you know, produce some some highbrow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so a piece of you know William Faulkner or, uh-huh. or something like that. You know, um, and. Uh, but no, 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 we got the old penis transplant. <laughs> As for his mother, the lady who visited him in hospital and said, no one's ever going to want to dance with you. I think she had a copy, but she never opened it. Um, right. So, but, but you, you know, it was there. So there was my dad, because he painted and drew and wrote books, and he then went on and wrote plays and had stuff on television and things like yeah. that. You know, I, I, the short answer to your question is I come from an arts background. And your mom, did she do it as well or no? No, my mum had, uh, she was the daughter of some uh, industrialists, some some wealthy South Wales. Uh-huh. Welsh border industrialists. Oh, really? And uh, so, but she went to she went to university. She was the first one of the first generation of women to graduate. Uh huh. So they some they have a parade sometimes now of these old graduands who are all you know just about to <laughs> to pop off, but then in their late eighties. But they women who were allowed, um, you know, they were. I don't know, but women weren't allowed. They eventually they got to university in about the twenties, but they weren't even acknowledged as as eligible to graduate until the forties, which was my. So they could do generation. it as a hobby, or yeah, they could do it as a hobby, waiting a class. To, in between, wait, you know, waiting to have children. Yeah, basically. right. Uh, and when my parents met there in the late forties, my See, my wounded dad and my um my sort of you know wealthy country mother and um you Your know dad did was, all right it was then. a marriage made in cambridge yeah ah they God. went to cambridge they were at they met at cambridge university uh-huh. um but and i lived in cambridge in the late 70s and very early 80s that's where the soft boys incubated so i kind of went back up there um to look for musicians in my uh, uh, well, whatever it was. In when did my you start? 20s, when uh, did you start playing? How old were you? 
Well, I started playing the guitar when I was 14, but I didn't learn to tune it for the first six months. So I used to just important. play along to my... You're too kind. <laughs> I I played along to my, um, you know, Bob Dylan and Donovan records. Were those, were those the, the so first... The first thing I learned was the attitude. Yeah. You know, that yeah. the way the fingers hit the strings <laughs> and the way you felt, the way you moved your the head. Show. The show. The <laughs> show. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't do it in front of a mirror, but I did it... I, I was just so pleased to have yeah. my my <laughs> yeah. fingers around the guitar, and then I think I realised when the record stopped that I I don't know some <laughs> somewhere along I realised that I had to tune it, <laughs> and then I got lessons from a guitar teacher who he had three of his fingers had been damaged in an industrial accident, so it was an odd thing to have because they were classical, but he could only get two fingers onto the onto the you know of the um of the right hand that the plucking yeah fingers. yeah. So you learned to pluck first? Well, I learned to pluck, but all I really wanted to do was be Bob Dylan, like most of my generation. You know, so was, that I, was who you gravitated towards? It wasn't towards, uh, well, I mean, the Beatles were too poppy at that time? or um, What were the choices? I love the, choices? the Beatles. Well, the Beatles, you know, if you're there, as a, you grow, whatever you grow up with as a kid is what you take for granted. So right. I was living um, in the... Uh, you know, six, 1963, 64, basically kind of in this village green place. And uh, there was um, up the road, it was a, t a town, uh, what's called a dormitory town. It's about 25 miles out of greater London yeah. or whatever. And, and people could get trains from there into London in 40 minutes, you know, like right. a weapon of mass destruction from Iraq to the mm. center of London, allegedly. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, my father of limited destruction could get in <laughs> to London and back at, at time to, um, you know, paint mm -hmm. or draw when he got home in the evening. And uh, so uh, but when the Beatles became successful, they moved south and three of them, all bought houses in this sort of rather naff Beverly Hills area are sort of it, basically people with money but no taste. Right. Paul McCartney wisely got a, a place in, um, you know, Cavendish, whatever it is, in, near somewhere nice in St. John's Wood, which, yeah. which would obviously last him for life. But the other three with their blonde wives just went, oh, right, I'll have one of them, you know. <laughs> there you are, give us a million, mate, done. So George, John, George and, and Ringo all got places in in um, this place called uh, St. George's Hill, which yeah. was the, the posh bit of, of Weybridge. Right. And so, you know, by the time I was 11, I knew I was just a mile down the road from the fabs. Yeah. But... Um, at that age, you just take it for granted. I, I never saw them or anything. But, right. You know, but meanwhile, the soundtrack to my adolescence from Please Please Me at 10 to right. um, Abbey Road when I was 16 was the Beatles. Always. Uh, exactly. You know, right. so, but I never thought I could do anything like that because I didn't have any musical ability. And because pop music was... Um, I think you know my background was quite it was quite snobbish it was sort of highbrow you know we weren't I think it was we were sort of kind of middle class people who wouldn't have gone into pop music right you know was your mother did they like uh, classical music or uh, my dad liked a good tune my dad was much more mass market than yeah. my mother and my mother's tastes I think were pretty highbrow yeah so um 
something like the Beatles, it, it, it just didn't occur to me to, to, you know, that being a pop singer wasn't on the radar. I wanted to be Doctor Who. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be something esoteric. Right. Um, you knew that early on. That you, you, yeah, you, I knew I wanted to be some kind of character that... Um, and, you know, Doctor Who was mass market. That was on TV as well. But it's but, very specific. But it was specific. You know, yeah. I want... And, um, and then I discovered Dylan, and Bob Dylan was very... He was compelling, but he was also enigmatic. Right. And, you know, the Beatles were much more kind of four square and obvious. I, right. I love the Beatles, but, but, but things like Doctor Who and Bob Dylan made a lot more sense to me as a... Well, that's As a twelve, thirteen-year-old, and if you look at what I've done, I mean, I'm, I, yeah. I'm obviously, you know, firmly on the fringe of things. Sure, and also um, that but, seems to me ideologically know. and aesthetically uh, makes sense that Doctor Who and Bob Dylan, certainly now, you know, after you know, as a solo artist, that seems to make a lot of sense. Oh yeah, no, that <laughs> was that was that, and then throwing a bit of P.G. Woodhouse if you know about him. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the, the Bertie Wooster, the sort of, you know, um, stammering upper-class twit. Yeah. So I basically cobbled myself together from a, a mixture of Bertie Wooster, Doctor Who, and Bob Dylan. And they were all, you know, they were all on the TV or in the, the radio. They they weren't hard to find, but they were a little bit more specific than the Beatles. But as a songwriter, it seems that, you know, it makes sense to me, uh, though you're, you choose more abstract things but you know in terms of dylan's ability to turn a phrase and create an image i mean that must have pounded that into your head that you know his just his songwriting capability oh, oh totally you know yeah. and also he he has a great ability to flip from being arcane um and abstract and abstruse to being really specific and putting things in very very simple terms you know and, he, yeah, yeah. and his music that uh if you listen to the way the songs are put together they're they're pretty simple you know when i learned sure. to tune my guitar and i i forsook my old teacher with the three broken fingers i just got hold of a bob dylan songbook and within 10 minutes I could play Mr. Tambourine Man and Blowing in the Wind and Visions of Johanna because they were all on three oh, chords. Visions of Johanna. God damn that song. Exactly. Oh, my God. Um, the uh, the Ghost of Electricity Howls in the Bone of a Silver Yeah, place. yeah. That's it, right? That's a gateway. Well, what totally. Is that? That's, I mean, that, I was 13 when I heard that. And oh, that, my God. That pretty much tipped me over. I just thought, okay, this is where I want to go. Right. Um, in Divisions of Johanna. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, because, because, and, and I I mean, you know, I think nearly 50 years later, why? I think Visions of Johanna manages to go in two opposite emotional directions at once or more. It's very sad, you oh, know, it's, it's, but it's oh. also really funny and it's quite cruel and it's quite philosophical and it's all these moods and, and feelings are kind of just compressed there into six minutes you know condensed right that song to me to this day you know because you know you look at a catalog like that and the fact that you and i share that song is interesting because he's got a huge catalog but for some reason that song even to me today if i listen to it is just as powerful as any time i you know the yeah. first time i listen to it like you sit there and it's almost like your heart and your mind is is searching for meaning in in lines that necessarily aren't going to provide that or explain themselves <laughs> but they'll take you someplace every one of them like i it, it's one it's not unlike uh it's all right mom i'm only i'm yeah, only dying like yeah. i'm like it seems like all the answers are in this song i don't know what they are i'm not even sure what the questions are but they they're all there 
Well, that was part of the attraction with Dylan and also probably a burden that that he didn't really want to have to shoulder after a while. He seemed to be the man with the answers. And uh, no one can you know, quite understand. And, well, he'd say, you know, no, no, I'm I'm uh, he later said something like, well, you know, I'm the first to put the question to you and the last to answer it. But he maybe because of the nature of the questions he asked, it seemed like he might have the answer. OK, well, what is it, Bob? You know, I mean, it, it, it the thing is, he had wisdom, all the others, you know, and prior to that, entertainers in, in popular music had been sexy and they'd been fun and yeah. you know frank sinatra and elvis presley and the right. beatles they they could all do comedy they could act yeah uh, and they could have where were great singers but they you didn't go to them for enlightenment <laughs> yeah. you know you went to them because they were sexy and you or they made you cry or they, they were emotional conductors but they didn't it, they weren't there wasn't wisdom it wasn't like dylan was like going to a rabbi or listening to a poet it was suddenly like it was another level yeah it was a different look in the eyes there was or at least you know there were to to us at that age and yeah, and, I, and so uh, in a way that's been his curse he's had to live with seeming to be the guy who knew something and people have tried to I think almost cut him open for years. You oh, know, there's that say, great docu- what is it? What's yeah. in there, Bob? The, what is it? You that know? great documentary, the Don't Look Back documentary. With, yeah, it's amazing with him and uh, and Donovan in that the discomfort and the weird <laughs> people asking him questions that he did. If this, he just completely destroys that one reporter. He's like, "You want to be my friend? Why do you want to be my friend? Do you remember that scene in that? Yeah, movie? yeah. Where it's just like it's so cutting and so brutal. But I, I wonder how conscious he is at this point of of being Bob Dylan and just work doing the job of Bob Dylan? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, it's it's up to him to define what the job of Bob Dylan is. Yeah. I think he he seems to be someone who doesn't like being defined. Um, Are you the same way? Probably. I mean, but I would, if I to say that would be to define myself, wouldn't it? You know, it... <laughs> I mean, there's that there's that bit in Magnum Force where they keep you know the second Dirty Harry movie, yeah. and they have this line that goes through all the all through the movie. You know, um, you're a good man, Briggs, and a good man knows his limitations. And, and when Briggs finally explodes in the car, that you know, Clint's put the bomb in the trunk, and and uh, he Clint turns to the camera and says, "A man's got to know his limitations, Briggs." And, <laughs> you know, and. But I don't know whether that's true. You know, I, I, I suppose there's difference between limitations and definitions. But if you're too aware of what you're capable of um, or how you want to be seen, I mean, it's probably better to market yourself that way. Uh, yeah, things are easier to sell if you know what they do. And I've never really defined what it is I do. Well, I think that people that know that are, are probably, uh, in, in my mind... As an artist, they're they're a little too conscious of selling. Well, you know, you can see why people would want to sell, especially over here, because yeah. there's no safety net. Right. And, uh, you know, establish your brand and sell it. Yeah. And Dylan did establish a brand, but he was, you know, he was so intense. Always cut. Uh, he always worked he against it, too. He just likes to... Yeah. He likes to move. I was just listening to some old... Um, uh, acetates that a friend of mine got hold of 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 dylan from sort of 1969 70 or whatever and it 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 just seems like he'll do something once and 
as soon as he starts to mess around with it, he loses it. And mm -hmm. a lot of the original versions of things were better than the ones with overdubs and right. the stuff he fussed over. And he, I think Bob Dylan's got an instinct for getting it right immediately i think he hasn't got a great instinct for editing and if i know but i noticed that live he trims all the verses out of you know yeah the songs but um when you've got that gift for expression maybe you can't have that gift for editing he's sure he's not inhibited but he i just think that the instant snapshot the first brush of uh, you know the paint on the canvas the the first exhalation of breath the first thing that pops into your mind is likely to be the most honest and and the most um, difficult to uh, recapture yes and i've noticed that yeah. that when i've recorded demos or i've done a take or something people the engineer or the producer will say oh, okay can you get it like you did on the first one and in the end we'll just use the first one or or that it's what I call the honesty of the unconscious that actually yeah. the first thing you say is what you really mean and then you start thinking about it hmm I, I don't want to be seen to say that yeah uh, you, you know and sometimes in terms of human interaction you can't you can't say the first thing you said even if you meant it because it's too upsetting to and especially as you get older you sort of try and yeah censor you can sure. more aware restraint of, yeah, pen you know, and restraint tongue. and exactly you know <laughs> yeah so but don't want to cause any trouble exactly don't want to cause any trouble but but you know one of the things about being under 30 is that's the time to cause trouble yeah, fuck and exactly so uh but i think dylan still has that instinctive gift i don't think of him as a craftsman he's not like saying nick Lowe, who nick is very good at working on songs and and honing them down and you know he's still he's still able to write great songs in under three but minutes he's a, but he, he's also a pop songwriter i mean you know he like he mm, yeah i yeah. mean he's very conscious of pop structure you know yeah. he you know he he sort of he he respects it and it, like when I yes. look at Dylan, it seems that Dylan was literally working out this wisdom or whatever it is. I think that a lot of Dylan happened on the page that when he had the pen, it almost becomes like an equation. Those words become an equation, like, you know, the geometry of innocence, flesh on the bone. Where the fuck does that come from? You know, you're not really thinking that, well, this is going to be a great refrain or this is going to be. A, you, you, it seemed like the urgency was in the words. Yes. The urgency. I'm, I'm sure it just struck him as right. But when you write, too, like, I mean, though you I, I guess people think you're a, a psychedelic or a surrealist thinker but it seems that some of this stuff that you work out and i'm only going to go back to the soft boys for my own and then we can go because i mean globe of frogs was another manifestation of you that like i listened to compulsively for about uh -huh. a month all right yeah and because the production was so like amazing it was mind-blowing and the harmonies it was just, mm. and the lyrics are, but it seemed like talking where we're talking now that if i listen underwater moonlight or the or the album before that you only did a few with the soft boys i underwater moonlight resonated with me because it seemed to have a lot of venom in it and mm. i don't know if, if it was there but insanely jealous you know i listened to that song over and over again and there was a yeah and then also the album before that the intensity of of how you were playing there was a, a fucking edge to it yes that you seemed to mean business now was that just a younger man you know having that freedom to sort of push that out there and provoke? I don't think it was just freedom. I think it's just part of the condition of being younger. Yeah. I mean, I was what 25, 26, 27 when I made those records. So um same age as John Lennon when he was doing 
your blues and you know yeah, or, yeah. Or, a bit, or, or, or Dylan I think had actually already peaked you know he'd fallen off the bike at 25 yeah. but essentially you're talking about a young guy in his 20s and at that point you're still all your frustration your venom your um testosterone yeah all that you know you're aggressive you're you're still only you know the best time to recruit boys as soldiers is when they're 13 14 you know they've they've reached puberty but they're not having sex yet and so they think they're indestructible For and they'll the, go and kill anything yeah you know um i so sure i was i was full of piss and vinegar at that stage and when when did you start like because obviously like it seems like now you're more closer to the folk music that resonated with you at 17, but it seemed like at some point something else filled your head. You know, you you know, you put a band together. You you know, you chose a, a style of music that mm. was not necessarily hugely. Um, it wasn't. It was definitely not the Beatles. It was more like you know some. Other, I I don't know. I mean, a lot of people talk about Sid Barrett when they talk mm, about you. Yeah, and a lot of people talk about. It, it, that type of psychedelic sound but you're also in those early records it was definitely there was more poppiness to it how much who influenced you later i mean maybe dylan put the drive shaft in but when did you start to to realize that you know you're gonna rock uh well i think dylan putting it really crudely dylan and and doctor who and bertie worcester showed right. me what i could be right um i think Sid Barrett showed me how I could be it. You know, I wasn't a curly-haired Jewish kid from Minnesota. I was a um, mother's boy from the home counties of, of southern England. Yeah. Um, in the course of all that, though, I started um, getting to know other musicians. And also, um, I was listening, you know, gradually absorbing stuff. But um, it, it sort of kept coming back to the Beatles. I mean, I remember somebody playing the first Soft Boys EP, which was which is what I would now call art rock, you know. Yeah. You can see little bits of Captain Beefheart and little bits of Sid Barrett in it. And plus the stuff the other guys were listening to, you know, the Beach Boys and Steely Dan. But what we all had in common was the the Beatles. Right. I remember somebody saying, "Oh, I, I think it sounds like the Beatles really." And and you know, nobody else did, but but I I think the the common thread, but certainly every time I've recorded with with that template, whether yeah. it was with the Soft Boys or with Egyptians or with the the Venus Three, you know, the later one with the the REM guys, Peter yeah. Buck and Scott yeah. McCoy, and um, it all it's always a version of Beatle music. Whenever <laughs> I have two guitars, bass, drums, and harmonies, what I invariably do is Beatle music, and it doesn't really matter who I'm working with. Uh, I don't mean they're insignificant, but I always find people that want to make Beatle music. <laughs> Statistically, about 75% of them are also into Steely Dan, which I'm not. I'm but, not either. But um, well, we can then both unlisten to the same records. Well, what, but, what, what, what is it about Steely Dan that everybody likes so fucking much? I mean, I get it. You know, it's, it's sweet music in a way, but it, it doesn't ever feel... It always feels like it almost satisfying. It's never satisfying. Okay, I get the production's um, great now. I think it depends what flavor you like. Yeah. I mean, do you like Tom Waits? Sure. Because I don't... I just don't... I'm not drawn to Tom Waits. I don't think he's bad or anything. I just there's something about the the sound of his voice that doesn't do it for me. Like, right. Like this, the sound of Bob Dylan's voice will turn people off. You know, yeah. I kind of, and I think it's just a flavor thing. Some people get, they just get a certain right. And so I think some people 
whatever it is, you know, it could be like what blood group you are. So you put on Steely Dan and it's Donald Fagan singing or something. And just the tone of that voice, it's like for your cats, if you scratch their back or give them catnip, they go, hmm. Yeah, right. You know, whereas if, you, if you're not, if the Dan doesn't resonate with you, it doesn't go into your bloodstream, right? You just go, ooh, you know. To me, Steely Dan seems, uh, my problem with them is it's airtight. It's sterile. completely... Well, it's crafted. It's it's like the nightclub in the days before the smoking ban, where where you couldn't open the window and say so it would just fill up with, it, you know, it just makes you want to go and clear your nostrils, <laughs> take a walk on the Welsh hills, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to listen to a, a, an underproduced Nick Drake record or something. Right, right. You know? What but, was the first Sid Barrett thing that you came in contact with? Um, the first, well, it was the Arnold Lane, the first um, forty-five, which uh-huh. was produced by. Joe Boyd, who has coincidentally produced my new record. Was the first time you worked with him? No, I've worked with him quite a lot on uh, a number of things. So eventually we we uh, actually did this record. But it's beautifully recorded. It's recorded by um, the engineers John Wood, who did Buena Vista Social Club. And he did the people, the rock people that Joe worked with in the 80s, like R.E.M. and Billy Bragg and uh-huh. 10,000 Maniacs. But he... Since Buena Vista Social Club, Jerry has become highly rated as a world music. I love that as a recorded. You know, the idea of what's what's world what's not world music. Yeah, where does not world music come from? You know, world music always seems to uh, involve uh, African rhythms in my mind. Well, I think that's the idea. It's like okay, well, if it's not from uh, if if it's not done by middle class white people from <laughs> world Britain and America, it must be world music. It's done by the Africans, <laughs> right? But um, but. Uh, yeah, no, the, my record's very um, simple and very, uh, you know, it is the product of a of a 60-year-old man. I don't know what the 23-year-old me would have thought of it. They'd have been, the 15-year-old me would have been thrilled that I was finally, you know, had a record with produced by Joe Boyd on it. But they'd probably find it disgustingly mellow, you know, there's nothing. But it's like, but that's the evolution of the artist, right? I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, uh, I mean, I think that, like, going back to your feelings about, you know, reuniting the soft boys and that weirdness is that you can't, you can't really go back. <laughs> no, you can't. I mean, that's again. I mean, actually, one of the great things about Nick Lowe is that he, um, he's embraced his age. Uh, you know, he makes yeah. records that sound like the guy he is. He's not trying to squeeze himself into into a younger person's clothes or hair or anything. And the same with Dylan. Dylan almost relishes the ravages that time have made on him. Yeah. Whereas there's people like McCartney who fight it. You know, who still want it. They want to look and sound like Beatle Paul. Well, you know, I suppose if you're selling out 50,000 seat stadiums, people who want to hear, yeah, um, only a uh, we can be- work it out, you know, then uh, look, there's one of them. Here I am, you know. Well, they're the Beatles. There's only exactly. two left. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so Paul, Paul wants to keep the brand going and that involves looking that way. But, but I, it's on the whole better if you can, if you can go with time, but. I don't know, you know, you don't have to accelerate it. Um, I'm lucky, my my voice has held up. Yeah. And um, I've learned quite a lot, but I'm still, I don't know, my stuff doesn't sound that old. Um, I don't think so. So I don't know, really, but it. anyway, we're, we were somewhere. We must yeah. have been. Sid Barrett. 
the first oh, one. Yeah, yeah, ago. that's right. I heard that. Uh, and then Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And it was out there, man. Like, um, so, like, it would, I mean, when you say that the, the first uh, Soft Boys EPs were, were art rock now, I mean, did Sid Barrett represent some sort of idea that, like, holy shit, you can really push it? No, I don't think I thought of pushing anything. I, I, you know, having gone from, you know, if I was, if I was Doctor Who, Bertie Wooster and Bob Dylan, yeah. really, you know, there was sort of, uh, I, I, I suppose there was a degree of science f- fiction and a sense of possibility. It was all about anything might happen. I right. suppose that was the the best thing I liked about those characters and the kind of music they produced and one of the best things about the 60s and the psychedelic era and the whole social revolution if you like you know i remember the world going into color on january the 1st 1965 and uh, and because i was a bit too young to get fucked up on drugs at the time i was really aware of everything moving yeah um and you know modern by the end of 1968 modern life as we know it was kind of there you know um and if you go back to 1963 it was the old days yeah. it was it was essentially although rock and roll had happened it was still like 1945 people were still dressed in that way men wore caps and yeah. women wore headscarves and by the end of the 60s they were kind of beginning to look like they do now you know whatever it was and it's quite hard to define what it was happened in that period and the music went with it but i started making music 10 years or releasing records 10 years later when the 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 momentum from the 60s had stopped and begun to swing back you were getting reagan getting into place you yeah. were getting thatcher leading the conservatives it was uh the sense of progress and momentum had st- had stopped you know the pendulum had swung that far and it was beginning to go back mm-hmm. and so by the time we did underwater moonlight um you know the russians had invaded afghanistan there'd been the iran hostage situation here you know i would meet I remember meeting a bunch of U.S. servicemen who turned up at one of our gigs in Scotland and said, yeah, Carter's a pussy, man. We should nuke Iran, you know, yeah. and we were thinking, what the fuck? You know, yeah. it was it was real. Uh, so if you think I was sounding venomous and things that it was it was a lot of paranoia. around. Right. Uh, a lot, you could really see that everything you'd hoped for in the 60s was not happening right i mean you know there had been a lot of progress but the mood had just changed and then the capital off john lennon was shot you know so we were really tipped into the beginning of the 80s with it i was with a sort of complete sense of despair and um did that affect you like deeply well i've always been fairly morose but i just listened to a lot of brian ferry and i just drank heavily and i probably I dare say the edge went off my music and I just started to become a bit dreamier, you know. I started... Detached? I, yeah, well, I think I was always detached, but I think I became even more so. And um, But, you know, what I liked about Sid Barrett wasn't so much the sense of experiment. There was just... Again, there's something in somebody's voice. Yeah. Something in Bob Dylan's voice. Right. Up till the bike crash and then it gradually evaporated and there's things still in it there's soul and depth and timing and humor but there's some essence left him he didn't die but a a little bit of him went you know 
Barrett had something for two or three intense years, and then it all went so completely he wasn't even Sid anymore. He was Roger. He was a bald guy who wandered around and painted and was sought by his fans, and had he effectively got rid of himself. Did you, you know? try to find him? No, I didn't try to find him, but I knew what was going on, you know. Um, and uh, What was it exactly? Um, I don't know what happened to him, which again increased the the um, enigma, you yeah. know, and ironically the same with Dylan. You know, Dylan attracted all this attention and then tried to shrug his shoulders and go, oh, well, me, man, I don't know nothing. You yeah. know, you know. Um, Barrett had this phenomenal talent he was a beautiful looking guy he there was something in his voice something in the songs he sang that was um again you know it's the honesty of the unconscious yeah uh, i've said this before but i think both of them had it i think captain beefheart had it for a while it's something that i've tried to allow you Some, don't pursue it. You have to allow it to happen. Something has to get out, and you let it. Well, you yes, but you also exactly. But you have to also encourage it to before it can get out of you. You have to let it ferment inside you. You have to be open to these things. <laughs> right. It's like being prepared to sing your dreams. You know, yeah, I don't yeah. know if my dreams are any more exotic than my accountant's dreams, but I do know is that you know he just go oh, I have a funny dream or something, but he, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't. It's not important to him, whereas to me, that's how my mind works. Do you um, actually use your dream? No, I don't, but I, I, I think it's the same mechanism. That's what's I speaking. Think, I, yeah, I think that, yeah. and again, you know, we don't know what it is. Right. It's just there's some, something goes on inside us, some fermentation, some right. chemical reaction of the different, of us reacting to the way our lives are settling in on us every day like a i don't know like a telephone wire telegraph wire vibrating when the birds land on it or something yeah. you know there's just we're just reacting to our lives and that becomes our dreams but it also becomes our the the, the creations i right. think i just think it's probably all the same part of you and right and that's extremely important to me and so and probably because i come from a, a, an art background you know my dad was an artist and my mother encouraged the arts you know so i was brought up to think this sort of thing was important and and i could see it in those guys particularly and at that stage they all they tended to be men i mean joni mitchell was probably the first female to really unleash herself that way but um did she blow your mind no but she's very good but yeah. um, you know but I, I this is really me at a kind of certain stage when those things hit me what about bowie Bowie is really good, but he's he's later on. Bowie is a 70s... He had the momentum in the 70s that right. Dylan had in the 60s. Right. And uh, listening to Heroes, um, you know, I think it, it's a work of genius up there with um, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. It is, it's pushing things. Yeah. The mixture of pop music and avant-garde, and it's also very visual. There's an awful lot of crops up in your mind or my mind it's a great record to Moving. paint or draw yeah, to yeah, yeah. I see a lot when I listen to Heroes it's just it's, you know it all like a, a you know Barrett stuff I love painting or drawing to you know he was a visual artist yeah. and I I see a lot and yeah. Beefheart another artist and I know Bowie paints and you know there's some like I said it's really 
it's very linked up to what's me your, the visual uh, and the and the um what you hear yeah. and what's your favorite beefheart album uh the most listenable one is clear spot which is the one that should have been a a big hit um i got all of them i i tried uh, to like i really tried to fill, fill my head with them um just what's curious. your favorite one I like the I, I mean I like the weird old noisy ones. I mean I like Trout Mask Replica and I like uh, Safe as Milk and I like I mean I, I you know it's like I don't like I just recently got into them so it's I haven't oh. plowed it con, con, you know into my head thoroughly. It's pretty dense stuff. Well, it is because um, a lot of it it's 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 sort of um, you know it sneaks up on you because some of it is just is pretty garagey and pretty bluesy and then all of a sudden yeah. everything breaks apart and you're like yeah. where are we now. Well, he definitely had those three phases. He had the the sort of bluesy garage, the Rykuda. Yeah, I'm very testosterone, um, right? Pushing, you know, a little little bit druggy, probably, but but essentially, you know, white guys doing black music, like, right? But 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 really forceful. And then a few years later, you got Trout Mask Replica, which is everything kind of. Um, refracted through an unlikely prism and and put together pretty much using the magic band as slave labor but the result is that they produced a piece of music that no one had done before or since you yeah. can't rip that stuff off <laughs> yeah. uh you know you and no one would want to put themselves in the situation to make it and even if they did they wouldn't come up with that right you couldn't do and a cover of you that record do, well you could do a, a cover but you couldn't do you couldn't if you or i took you know five young recruits and yeah. went and starved them and lived in a house in Encino. You know, right. The, the cops would come around now. The guys would be tweeting and saying, <laughs> yeah. get me out of here, you know. But um, it couldn't be, it can't be repeated, you know. And then and then you got the, the sort of funk phase, clear mm -hmm. spot a few yeah. years later, which was delicious and enjoyable and would have been a big hit. But Beefheart being Beefheart uh, couldn't, stabilize enough to sell it and i think also he already had a reputation as being something that wasn't listen it wasn't something everybody could listen it's not for everybody it's like some you? sort of desert wizard yeah you know yeah, this yeah. is this you you have to be a certain kind of person to yeah. get beef up, same so with zappa don't worry about yeah. that zappa managed to be more mass market but again i i never developed a taste for him and i was i love beef heart but but oh you know those uh, it's he had quite a. He had those three phases, and he was. It seems like you do too, don't you? I mean, like you. I mean, like as a solo artist, I mean, you put out a record almost every year. Yeah, I my records tend to be. I always think of them as reactions to each other, like a windscreen wiper going from one side to the other. So you try to cancel yourself I, out, pretty much. Well, no, no, I try to achieve balance. So I probably make a record with a with a band you know and basically yet another one of my beatles records and yeah. then i go okay i'll make a quiet one so yeah. i've just done a, i did a produced sounding one last year love from london although it wasn't with a band but it sounds like it yeah um it, it, it's for me it's the very produced arranged end of my spectrum oddly enough done in a smoky bedroom in clerkenwell by my friend paul noble uh, and then the the complete opposite is the one I've just done with Joe Boyd, which is, um, uh, you know, very organic and simple and no overdubs and no edits and all that kind of stuff. So I imagine, you know, I don't know if I'll then do another, my next one will be very produced sound. I mean, 
I just go back and forth. Well, when I when when Globe of Frogs came out, for some reason in my mind, that felt like uh, this was a like um, a big record mm. in my mind. Was it a big record for you? Big in what way? Well, did it sell better than the other ones? There, I mean, I wasn't there. There was sort of a uh, some radio play involved in that one. It sold more relatively, but you know that probably just meant it sold another thirty. 40,000 copies than I normally did and um, and then after a while that just <laughs> evaporated you know and I sell whatever I used to sell except that now people don't buy records I sell less of it so it can't Well you give away you. songs now I mean I went to your website well, to catch up and they're taken you know <laughs> See, there's well, You can download for free the 45s that you're putting The Phantom 45s Yeah Yeah we do there's an honesty box you can pay for them if you want or okay. you can download them I don't know I mean, I have those, but I also have uh, other records. I'm quite prolific, so I'm ha quite happy to give a bit of away. Well, it know? seems like that's the thing. You just keep working and you record as much as possible. Well, I do, because one day I won't be here uh, to record it. And unless I can get uh, or somebody can get a computer with a Robin Hitchcock app, which yeah. produces you know what i might have been doing and i think that's quite possible that they will come up with it and i wouldn't feel sad if they did because you know i'd love to feel i was still there in some way but until that you know once i'm gone i'm going to leave a finite body of work but it's a big one well you know it's so be it if you know if anyone wants to listen i i'm really would like to keep producing stuff up and up till and maybe beyond my exit from this world i just you know, it's what I'm for. I produce these things, and, and I also now record quite a lot of other people's songs. I'm in late in life, late in my career, sort of becoming more of an interpreter. Half the records on the songs on my new record are covers. And of I'm, who? Uh, who I got? Brian Ferry. Uh, Which song? Uh, it's called "To Turn You On." You know, oh, the yeah, last yeah, yeah. Roxy album. Yeah. Uh, that song of the psychedelic furs, the ghost in you. Uh huh. Um, uh, what's the other one? A Grant Lee Phillips song. Um, uh, Don't Look Down off his first solo record. He's a good guy. Uh, he's a brilliant guy and a beautiful singer. Yeah. Um, Grant, I've got that. I've got a Doors song, um, The Crystal Ship. Oh, really? And Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, I've got... Uh, Oh, Annalisa Fröckdahl, the Norwegian chanteuse who um, sings with me on the record, there's a song that she co-wrote called Ferries, uh -huh. uh, which uh, I'm also singing. So there's five covers and five originals, and I'm, I'm now just, you know... How do you pick those, man? Uh, I mean, I, how do you pick the crystal ships? Oh, because I've been singing it for years, and I love it. I mean, I pick songs because I like them. Yeah, but I'm already thinking again. If if you know, I like that format of doing, um, mixing up my songs with other people's and seeing if I can make them work together. So it doesn't. There's not a big chasm between mine and and others. And I can, you know, they're all my performances. Right. Really, um, I mean, it's this whole thing of originality. The people we've been talking about, Dylan and Barrett and Beefheart, my prime influences. They were all people who who did something that had never happened before, which was one of the hallmarks of the 60s. It's much harder to produce a piece of music now that just couldn't have happened in the past. I mean, harder certainly for someone of my age, and you know, 
newer minds will, right. will blend influences in in a way that that I can't because I just don't come from that world. I couldn't make a Boards of Canada record or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, I could possibly make a record that sounds like Cass McCombs or something. But you know, there's a lot of stuff that I just I'm not equipped, and it would sound tragic you know as me as an old chap puffing up the hill trying to catch up with what's already long gone you know chasing the train as it leaves the station <laughs> yeah you might as well just uh, hold true to you who know, you are well but, but you know but it is interesting that that moment when people pick stuff they're going for things that haven't happened before and that's what those those guys did they were they were original in a way but you know what what it's also how you how you mix things up you know bob dylan was basically kind of mixing up t.s Eliot with bo diddley sure uh but but also you know t.s Eliot himself was was um a, a magpie a jackdaw he was somebody who who threw lots of old quotes in and then grafted crafted new stuff around it and, everything appropriate you know, everything yeah appropriate. all i mean is i think that in a way I don't know whether it's quite... I don't know how much one can originate anything. Maybe it's just a matter of how you blend existing things together. Well, I think what, what we talked about before, that the weird thing about being original, that moment of unconscious, that first moment. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the one. So, well, you know, that's well, the original. Well, there, there's the point when the original thought occurs. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just the style. Well, your style you have to hold on to after a certain point because yeah. you do have a certain... You have people that like you. You have a fan base and you have a point of view and you have a sound. And, you know, it, it would be a bold move, as you said, to huff up the hill and change it all around. I mean, if this is, you know, this is the world you've created, you know. Oh, yeah. No, I wouldn't. I mean... I think you need to just sort of let a bit of fresh water in sometimes. Otherwise, it you can see what happens when people just churn around, going around the same old stuff. They refine it, but they become sterile, you know, because they're basically working on things they've been working on forever. And you, you just need to let some... And you keep Some writing. I mean, I mean, you, the writing is is essential to that. I mean, you know, if if the lyrics at the core of it, which is you know, your lyrics are great and always evolving and Thank always you. interesting. So I mean, you know, if you keep writing those things down, you know, you keep moving, you keep growing. Well, I keep writing because I keep living. So, but is, you know, do, how does morbid? It's what a is, reaction as a morbid person and as a as a, as a poet and 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 a former somewhat. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if anger is the right word, but I mean, what part is, as you get older, does mortality play in your thinking other than I got to leave some stuff? I, I think it's the part, it's always played, actually. I got to leave some stuff. I know I'm not going to be here very long. Um, and I suppose there's a bit less time to drum your fingers, a bit less time to... You know, we just need to idle. We're built to, we're restless, but we're also designed to be unconscious and inert for about 30% of our lives. Yeah. Think how long we have to spend just, you know, you go crazy if you don't sleep. Yeah. So we need to have, we need to have breaks. We need to have points where we're, you know, just watching Mad Men or whatever it is sure. or sport or yeah. just, um, you know, lining up paper clips or things that appear to not be getting you anywhere are in some way doing that. And you think, God, I'd just like to cut through all this dead time. If I didn't sleep, I could write another 400 songs, you know. But, yeah. but it, it, 
unfortunately it's it's not like that we don't really know we don't know who we are yet and we don't know what we're doing you know we have not yet got into the the bank vault that has our instructions that explain why we're here we're still wandering around with just you know we've got a couple of old crumpled up post-it notes in the pocket saying, i think they said to, they said to what do you uh, you know we we just do not know we're still trying to figure it out what's well, sort of uh, funny you know. how dylan in these last records you know certainly when time out of mind came out mm. you definitely got the feeling just from i think lenoir produced that i think that yeah. that you, you you got the idea of a guy you know sort of you know the the something was dimming something got simple something became more stripped down with him in in later in life do you do you find that happening to you are your lyrics changing are they becoming you know uh, more reflective and and simpler oh I wish I think things are actually i as i the longer I live the more complicated things seem i I am maybe writing stuff that is or i'm trying to but i don't know how much control i have over this so yeah. i've got yeah i mean i've got a, some new songs people say are pretty direct but my stuff goes in spirals you know i mean not only am i doing the windscreen wiper in terms yeah. of style in terms of this is a, a, a full record and this is an empty record but the other one is being a kind of uh, they they go from being kind of rather daft and inane to being rather morose, and then they go quite. They get sort of poignant, and then they get they cross the date line, and they go they become silly. And I just know that it's not a mood swing, but it's a mood cycle. Yeah. So my songs just spiral around from sort of being a bit a bit jolly and inane, and, yeah. uh, to being just rather rather bleak or morose or whatever you know that's you, you, that's, 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 that's the way that's the way it is i think that's more honest than trying to get it all in one song you might as well just be uh you know straightforward with the uh, you know the feelings of of life in general you know that like some days are better than others and then things get dark yeah and then things get oh well that's sweet i'm gonna have a tear here and then yeah, back to the, the beginning but you never i mean you, you don't know what you're going to do, do you? So it's like, you know, if someone came up to you and said, what are you going to say at 3.45 tomorrow afternoon? You say, well, am I giving a speech? And you, no, no, you know, I just wonder what you might say. Well, that depends what's been happening. So, yeah. we, But, uh, you know, you must have this as well as, a, as a, an artist, as a creative individual, yeah. that you live in hope that you're going to produce something that you're going to get something great. You're going to catch the big fish. You well, know. sometimes I, it's just for me, like if I perform, if I do stand up, I know the thing that's never going to happen again is the thing I'm looking for. That, you know, that moment that you were talking about before where, where something just comes together on stage. It's different with music because I think you have a better shot at, at recreating a moment, especially if it's attached to music. But if, if something happens improvisationally on a stage that, that never happened before and that probably I could not recreate, sadly, those are the moments that I live for. Well, that's, under, but that's good to know. I mean, I don't think you can recreate it. You you can record it. Yeah. So if you happen to be someone's recording your act, you know, right. then they'll say, okay, this is the moment he came up with. You know, they listen to this. Right. But, um, but to I be think in that argu room. Uh, yeah, arguably you can't, you can't recreate it, but it's still worth doing. Oh, absolutely! Um, yeah, I mean that's what you know, that's what in that moment that's what it feels the most alive. 
Yeah, because it's something you had not anticipated. Exactly. But what you can do is you can create the conditions in which it's most likely to happen. That's right. You know, it's like trying to create a situation in which lightning will strike. Yeah. Um, uh, and then you can just hope for it. You hope for it. You know, <laughs> yeah. you can you can cover yourself in gasoline and run naked out into the lightning and say, take me, take Let's me. Let's do it. You, know. you want to play a song? I can certainly try. Hang okay. on. Okay. Um, are you in town for a while? No, I have to go tomorrow. Where to? I'm just going up to. Well, I'm going up to Seattle. Oh yeah. And uh, uh, do you know Eugene Merman? Yeah. Um, Eugene's just done a. Talking of recording live comedy, he's just done three nights at this place. I'm going to play um, a Columbia Theatre. Oh really? In I've never been there before. I play the Neptune up there. Oh, I know the Neptune. Yeah, yeah. I played that last year. Yeah. That's a good venue. Yeah. Yeah, Huge and I, I know Huge. He's been on the show a few times. Oh, has we he? Have the, we have the same manager. Do you? Olivia Wingate. He... She's British. <laughs> oh, I think I might have met her. Probably. Eugene and I have had some mammoth grooves. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Do you, I can do you stay smoke? Up. Well, I only smoke when I drink, but I, I think I stopped everything for... I remember I, I hadn't had a cigarette or a drink since Christmas, and then I ran across Eugene <laughs> and that in was February. Yeah. Well, I knew it was coming, but you know, I thought, well, I, you know, I'm going to have six weeks off because I'm going to see Eugene in early February. <laughs> blow sure. it out! I blow it all out. Yeah, no, we had some major grooves. got a heart full of soul and a mind beyond control and the way Blood. 
find a word in your rust box. So that's Trouble in Your Blood, which is on the new one. Great. Thank you. That sounded great. Thanks so much for playing it. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for talking to me. It's a pleasure. All right, that's it. That sounded great. He's great. He's a uh, he's he's a singular talent that guy, and I'm glad Robin Hitchcock stopped by. Go to wtfpod.com for all your WTF pod needs. For you know you can uh, you can look at the episode guide, and for God's sake, get the app. If you're new to the thing, get the free app and upgrade to premium, and you can stream like 500 so however many episodes. As you know, the most recent 50 always free, so everything's free for six months. But uh, but yeah, there's merch there. There's you know posters. There's stuff. You can comment now if you have a Facebook account and you identify yourself, at least whatever your Facebook identity is. I like it better like that. And it seems to be working out in terms of comments. I, I engage more with the comment section now that I can see people's faces. And I can, if someone's a douchebag, I can go, Bill, you're being kind of a douchebag. So that's there. Schedule's there. Everything's there. Justcoffee.coop. 
uh, is also available at WTFPod.com. If you get the WTF blend, you know, I get a little bit on the back end. They keep sending me coffee. I have a lot of coffee. I'm gifting coffee. That's what's happening. Boomer lives! <laughs>